Would you like to reach our film and TV review podcast audience? Do you have a product or service of interest to film and TV home consumers or followers of the entertainment industry? Have a film or show production to publicize? For affordable price plans for all budgets, get in touch and find out about our introductory advertising options. Reach our audience of film and TV viewers and visit our site contact page at filmandtvreview.com, or you can email us at business at filmandtvreview.com. Reach out today. Welcome to filmandtvreview.com. Catch the latest film, TV and streamed show reviews every week. The views and opinions expressed by the authors and those providing comments are theirs alone. They do not reflect the views, opinions or position of film and tvreview.com or their respective parent companies or affiliates. Film and tvreview.com makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information in this program and is for entertainment purposes only. Episodes may contain adult humor and language. For full terms and conditions see filmandtvreview.com. Welcome to this film and tvreview.com special. Robocop, a 1987 American science fiction action film, directed by Paul Verhoeven, and written by Edward Neumeyer and Michael Miner, is set in a dystopic and crime-ridden Detroit. It tells a tale of a terminally wounded cop, who returns to the force as a powerful cyborg haunted by submerged memories. It is a sharp satire on technology, corporate politics, mass consumerism, and violent crime in America. Robocop became a pop culture phenomenon, and is regarded now as a cinematic classic. Our reviews James, and Richard join our host in this retrospective special. Hello and uh, welcome to our film and TV review special. Uh, today I'm joined by James and Richard. And today we're going to be discussing a film classic. Today's special is on the 1987 film Robocop by Orion Pictures. Um, science fiction, stroke satire, soap action and classic starring Peter Weller and uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven. To put it in a genre, it, it's so difficult. I'd say it's almost satire. It's action, it's comic book, it's all these tropes but mixed into it and it's Originally, it was a script written really, really for adults. Um, as a co-writer there, in my mind, a classic. But um, described richly as maybe a science fiction, if you look at most reviews at the time and even now. But my question is, what genre is Robocop? Um, I'm using a genre that doesn't exist, but I'm using for that kind of movie, which is what I call... Smart sci-fi. What I mean is that uh, 
cosmos sci-fi it's very it is for me a sci-fi movie but the the director the writer whoever is using science fiction as as a social comment what at least actually i try trying to actually to comment on the society so in that case the 80s but to be honest i think there are a lot of things actually in that movie that can be also uh used as a commentary uh about nowadays actually about the society of the 21st century um there are some sci-fi movies that are i call them smart because yeah they they use these dystopian futures to actually to in a way to warn us us people let's say in the real world or of mistakes that we have made and mistakes that we can repeat and and maybe the path that we are on but actually we should change i'm not sure if i'm clear uh, in the case of robocop for example it's the idea of for example there are many topics but for example the idea of at what price uh, what cost uh, do you want security in a society uh, would you accept actually would you accept the uh, freedom to be taken from people uh, and also even uh, taken actually the, the the free will of some human beings of some police officers to make sure actually that security exists and of course also the idea of AI but I think we're going to talk about this and the AI and how to use properly uh, AI in a society. Uh, so yeah, that's how I call it, smart sci-fi. Um, James, he, we, we, I mean, we, we, from just from the script, what, what do you think of it? Or what, what's your overall kind of like view of the script? Because I've never seen, it makes it, I mean, it's a favourite of yours, but what would you say? It is. And I always feel slightly silly saying it's my favourite film of all time because of the title. But every time I rewatch it, or if I just stop and think about it, to be honest, I don't feel silly at all because I think there's so many great elements that are put together. As you both said, there are things that that really come through that are still relevant today. I mean, in terms of when it's set, so it sort of says the near future, which is a good thing to say with sci-fi i think i always remember demolition man where they said that it was set in 1994 and it was made in 1993 so by the time it come out on vhs it was already in the past and it just seemed like such a a dumb thing to do um the arcade game says it's 1990 there was a marvel comic adaptation that said it was 2015 mgm then when they acquired the film um, in the noughties did a, a DVD trailer to sort of promote the DVD release. And they said it was in 2029. And the novelization says it's in 2043, which is because there's a media break joke about President Stallone dying at a certain age. And someone jumped on that and said, well, if he died at that age, then this is set in 2043. So nobody really knows. And as a producer, John Davidson said, although it is meant to be in the future, it is really a lot of sci-fi is the product of the time it's made. So this is definitely kind of lampooning um, the 80s and things like that. I mean, when you said about the script um, that it's for adults, it's interesting if you look at the BBFC 
reviews at the time or the the assessments they did to to rate it obviously it ended up with an 18 certificate in the uk um but a lot of those or there's one report where someone ticks that it's a, a pg theme like a lot of it is pg but the violence is 18 no doubt about it and it really pushes it over the edge and i think that's what's kind of remarkable about the whole thing as well is that you'd have thought there would be someone saying hey this would work almost as a pg film and have the push to do that but the fact that it's as extreme in the violence as it is um is quite quite a thing um but obviously yeah it did it did start with the script so it was written by um ed newmeyer and michael minor ed newmeyer was working on he was actually on set for a lot of blade runner and I think when you look at the original script, you can see that he was very influenced by that. And he really wanted Delta City to sort of be this almost futuristic place. But this film was made on a relatively low budget. I think it's like $13 million. So it was a lot more than Orion had stumped up for The Terminator, which become like a massive, massive hit. But that was a low budget film. So it was a lot more than that. But still, in the scheme of action films, 13 million wasn't that much back in 1987 and about a million of that apparently went just on the suit. Um, but Ed Newmeyer had this idea, <clears throat> I think for a police officer who, who become like a, a sort of, who'd been in an accident and become like a lot more powerful and things. Um, Michael Miner had this idea called Supercop where it was someone who was being slowly upgraded um, and they kind of, when they met, um, they they were sort of bandying ideas around and said, hey, we've got these similar ideas and started to merge it into this one thing, which was Robocop. Um, obviously, in the, in the UK, we had a strip, a comic strip called 2000 AD. Um, and there's a lot of influence you can see from the Judge Dredd stri- uh, comic strip in 2000 AD. There's definitely a lot of differences as well. There's a lot more humanity to... Alex Murphy and Robocop but there's a very um big crossover to the point that even some of the the early suit designs really did look like Judge Dredd and the fact that the line come quietly or there will be trouble I think actually appears on the front cover of an issue of 2000 AD um and it's a shame that the two characters have never met in a crossover because it would be good good to see it but there's definitely an influence um that they took from that but in terms of the budget it meant that these ideas of doing it in a Blade Runner style city they couldn't happen it had to be more grounded which I think really works for the film actually and obviously the deviations they took from Judge Dredd because at the end of the day they were making a Judge Dredd movie um really helped with it but when you say about the um how well it's put together I mean it's a very lean movie so it's about 100 minutes Right. And the the sort of uh, events maybe take place over six months, possibly a year. And a lot of movies take place over like a day or two. So it really packs a lot into that time. There's not one scene you could lose out of this film, really, because there's no um, there's no fat in it at all. And the thing that I've taken the most when I've rewatched it, last time I saw it was just under a year ago in the cinema. And we live in a world of YouTube movie clips and stuff like that now. And you see seeing some of the wonderful scenes in this film. 
But when I've watched it as a whole, it's just how well the whole thing holds together, how pacey it is. It, every scene that you can't imagine it leading into another scene, it's just so, so lean. Yeah. So um, I think it's, yeah, it's probably coming across that I like the film, isn't it? <laughs> Richard, I mean, what do you think? Compared to what we got in Vogue now, which is like three hour movies, this is quite a time. Yeah. It's a good point. It's a good point that he made. I didn't realize it's true actually that this film actually in the end is, I was about to say short, but not in a bad way. I mean, it's it's true. It's packed with a lot of things for a movie, which is like, I don't know, an hour, 40 minutes, an hour and a half. So, yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Uh, But yeah, yeah, that's that's good. I mean, compared to nowadays, it's true. Actually, but I think we made a joke about this, by the way, uh, a few weeks ago about something else. Apparently, but actually to be taken seriously nowadays, you need to do long movies. And I never understood why, to be honest. So, yeah, that's actually a good recipe. Actually, But in the end, it doesn't matter how long the movie is. If you have good ideas, that's what matters. And talking about ideas, so this guy, so you tell me if I'm wrong, James. You said Neumeyer, that's his name, the writer? Neumeyer? Ed Neumeyer and Michael Miner, yes. So this guy, Neumeyer, when you say his name, I didn't know, to be honest, I didn't look online to see who wrote Robocop. But when you say his name, I checked now because he ring the bell. He also at least adapted the screenplay for Starship Troopers. He also, I think no, he wrote... He, he actually, yes, yes. So it's a book, isn't it, originally? So yeah. that is actually 10 years after Robocop. And it, it's um, the sort of reunion of Paul Verhoeven with exactly. Edmund Michael Miner and the composer Basil Polduris as well. Okay, yeah, so that's not surprising to me because, again, I think we're going to deal a little later, but if we talk about the script, again, what I like the most is definitely the ideas. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say that they were... Uh, shocking ideas but at least the fact that they address uh mistakes made by society it maybe comes from that guy actually because starship troopers also deals with that kind of stuff to be honest uh and uh yeah uh, yeah yeah I, I never actually did the math i never realized actually that this guy actually was related to robocop until now to be honest um but yeah, I, I don't know if we can talk about more about these things, about the, the topics of, of, let's say, about the, the subjects, the different subjects with the S at the end of Robocop. We should talk about them later. You tell me, Jason. Yeah, of course, because it seeds so much in it. I mean, for, I don't know, 90 minutes, 89 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Being able to talk about it, this. You're talking about corporate uh, structure and um, politics. Um, I suppose now, of course, we're already in the age of big private corporations taking over big essential sectors of, of city life and, and services. Um, and, and this is all seeded back in 1987. You could be like shocking them and thinking, how could a private company be allowed to run a police? You know, something as essential and fundamental as a police um, department or, or service in a city. Um now, now you think you wouldn't be, you would probably wouldn't be, you know, that that stranger. I mean, you, you've had to hack private firms who run um, prison services, you know, and to uh, made the headlines 
for better or for worse. So uh, we we it's fulfilled all, all of that that's been seeded or hinted at in that movie. Their satire, you, you always think, how could it happen? But now you think, yeah, anyway, it's happened. This is probably why you, when you rewatch it, you, think, it, you still find it. It's even more relevant as every time you seem to watch it as the years go by, which is, um, you know, um, I mean, it is based in nine. I mean, yeah, it was it's from from the eighties, but it, it it's corporate, it's greed, it's avarice, um, but that's that's part and parcel of of what private companies are, and that's you know it's just it's an engine, but now it kind of manifests into everyday life. It's, it's scary, um, but yeah. Um, as to, yeah, I, I mean, other aspects I would say is probably addresses um, technology. You know, kind of like it's um, how we're integrating. What's our relationship with it? But yeah, the, the, I mean, these, these are all kind of like parts of good sci-fi, really. But then, like I said, put it in a genre. It's difficult because now it's even as action and glory as gory as some of it is. It's comic book. Gory. I mean, yes, it, I think it, yeah, it went for, actually, it went for, it, when it first, the first cut was an X certificate. We have an X certificate in the US, you're not allowed to even publicize that on TV channels, which is the death nail for any film release. So I think um, to go back to the cutting room floor and cut a few seconds here and there, just to get it's restricted. Um, but I have a feeling, I have a feeling that when I watched it when I was a kid, I might be wrong because I said it's why. No, you, it's you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, it, it, you're going to say that it was more more violent, and the version you would have watched no, no, the other no, no. day would have. Yeah. Well, yes, but at the same time, I forgot the violent scenes that I watched a week ago. So I'm wondering if there was not a version that I watched when I was a kid, but I'd like the most violent scenes cut. Literally, is there? Well, there like, was. On ITV, so ITV showed it and cut all the violence out of it. And actually, unusually, if you buy the Arrow edition, Blu-ray or 4K, it's actually got the TV version on it, which has alternative shots and there's no blood. There's actually no swearing to the point that the word scumbag is changed to crumbag, which is totally ridiculous. But the theatrical cut was the only version available worldwide for a long time. But the okay, version that's be... probably mostly easiest to find now. Yeah. Murphy's death is longer, and the Ed Two Hundred Nine sequence, Eagle. particularly at the start, is longer. Uh, yeah, but, 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 but that's that must be it. When I watched, obviously, when I was in France, like you know, I said, I was like not even twelve years old when I watched it the first time in my life, and uh, and for sure, for sure, I, the scene that you mentioned actually that was shocking to me now. Is the what I call the execution, literally, of Murphy, because he's not even killed. It's an execution by five different people, literally. Uh, that scene, I, I can't remember something like that. And knowing myself, back in the day, at 12, 12 years old, I could get scared quite easily. I wouldn't have slept for a week after watching a scene so violent. So probably, actually, yeah, that was a cut uh, version that I saw. It, sure. it, it is a, I think I think a lot of um I mean it was aimed at adults, but of course it, it just reached the public um kind of like uh, I suppose 
foray into you know different age groups because you maybe your older brother or sister it was such a phenomenon at that time it was a big summer movie let's say but then over here in the uk we came sort of down on uh, on a video very quickly and so everyone started talking about it but but it, it's a good movie that's the thing it, it's not just mm-hmm. a movie we, so as a kid you, you get exp- you start to watch it but it, it is very tough to watch that you probably look away for, for a while before you you know, like like those films like Alien or something like that. If you're watching at a very young age, you tend to w- watch away, but but you still love the movie even as a kid. You know, it's just a bit above what your age group is. But that was that time when it was um, very adult themes, even though you are dealing with uh, in the shell of a comic book story almost. It, it's this uh, super cop or superhero almost in a in a modern form. I mean, they even make a line about it. It's it's the uh, comic book heroes that only their parents would read about in in, in comic books, but now uh, a reality in, in that day and age. Um. Um. So yes. Uh, anything other thoughts about the script for? Because I think we, as it is, yeah. Satire, I mean, in, especially done by just to, just to say on on the the violence. I think Murphy's death is probably. The reason this film will always carry an 18 certificate. I think the other scenes, bizarrely, as, as violent as they are, you could almost argue that OTT comic book moments, even the Ed Toro 9, even Emil melting at the end. Just to say we're obviously doing spoilers in this if, if you haven't guessed already. Um, but I think the level of sort of sadism in, in Murphy's death, it, it's a big thing for the BBFC here is like, dwelling on the infliction of pain and injury. And I think that's, it's definitely the most cut thing in the theatrical one. Um, And even the cut version is really difficult to watch. In fact, there's almost an element with the longer version where I feel it, it doesn't need to go into that because it almost becomes slightly more comic booky. And I think it's really important at that moment that you sympathize with the character that you don't think it's funny. And I think that's where this, this movie really throws people is Ed Neumeyer said there was like an approach where they were playing a lot of the comedy, uh, a lot of the violence as comedy. So when you look at some of those scenes, Ed 209, it's not really violence. It's an accident. It's something that sort of goes wrong. So it's like a sick gag, especially when someone says someone call a goddamn paramedic. And it's like the the guy is just like absolutely exploded. You know, the paramedic's gonna do nothing at that point, although someone needs to take him away. Um likewise the the toxic waste scene is kind of like he happens mm. to be there. Well you know it, it's kind of like a sick gag as well. And then it gets sicker and sicker as it goes. But um I think those things are almost containable at 15 these days. They were a huge obviously shock to people back then. Um but it's almost become like a touchstone for, I think films like The Terminator and Robocop were really influential on what's come after. And we'll, we'll talk about that obviously later. Um, but I think even the media breaks at the start, like the original script, I'm sure there's a lot more action at the start. I think it it starts with Fredrickson, the cop who's mentioned on the news who dies. I think it starts with the script with, Clarence and and the guys killing him so it's more of like a traditional action piece like you didn't it's a bit cliche now to have a new segment at the start and they probably took a bit of inspiration from things like network for that 
but to have that at the top of a um an, an action film and i do worry about it actually because the great thing about those media breaks is they shot them on on videotape rather than film to be um sort of authentic to what you had in the 80s however obviously when you've got had hd and 4k transfers of this i'm always concerned that people don't even get past the first three minutes because they put this film on they go oh my god the picture quality is terrible i'm not going to watch <laughs> this but obviously once you get to the the film that it's fine but those those um media breaks are literally sort of separate it into a three-act structure and there was going to be one at the end as well but the uh the final scene was was so impactful or what ended up being the final scene the final words in the film went down so well with audiences they thought you can't top that and they just stripped that that last media break out um yeah um, i think it's um yeah as you say bookmarks we watch it it bookmarks everything so well these media breaks um, it's such a well used technique in this film um um it kind of um i mean th those are the nicest parts of satire also when it's um but they mention you know it's technology turning on people who've put it into place in the first time like there's this array satellite that's um has a malfunction later on and kills the uh, the president <laughs> Or ex-presidents accidentally. This is probably right after the scene where maybe Robocop tends has is part of his malfunctioning, or rather the, the reawakening of the McSmurphy part part of it. But um, it yeah, is they mentioned. I think didn't they mention the Star Wars satellites? Yeah, the Star Wars satellite. That's right. Yeah, because because I think it was during that time when we was released that actually Reagan had seriously actually had a project of a star wars station yeah the no, little defense yeah. uh program yeah, initiative yeah. yeah different program to protect actually the country from the cold war etc <laughs> so and he called it the star wars project i think yeah but anyway it's a, just a detail but yeah yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I, I think lucas had a bit of a problem with that but um <laughs> he went ahead anyway um so i mean like I said, there's this satirical spine going through it, and and it is a look at American culture, and it's it's put to its credit. I think it, what works is because you've got a foreign pair of eyes basically commenting and narrating this from a film point of view. And that's uh, Paul Verhoeven, who took this on board. Um, read. I think this script was going around the houses initially and everyone was reading it and and saying, no, 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 you know, it's great, but no. And he, I, I think the title is a bit of a problem initially. If you just don't know what this, what the actual, without reading the script, you, you know, Robocop, it's very, like, uh, very generic and it sounds a bit cheesy. Uh, and so I, I think the story is he, he threw it to, he dismissed it out and without even reading it. Then his wife, I think on a holiday, read it and said, no, actually, go back and read this. Um, uh, James, I mean, you, you've, you've mentioned that um, Paul Verhoeven did, did, it was his first, I think, first American big american film i think this, this yeah one. so he he'd sort of done a couple of films in holland um noticeably turkish delight and uh soldier of orange 
with Rutger Hauer in the 70s, and they were really well received um, in his homeland. He then did a, a coming-of-age film called Spetters in 1980 um, that was just so controversial, and everybody hated it. People on the left hated it, people on the right hated it. Even though, and actually over the years, people have sort of come around to it, but it was very, um, yeah, it caused a lot of lot of um, friction between him and the film. They have like a film funding thing in Holland, or they certainly did there, where they would approve scripts. And I think it was sort of by the go the government would um, give you a loan or, or, or a, you know, grant to make your film. And with Spetters, they said, this this film's you know perverse decadent what have you you need to change the script so he did and then he got his money and he made the original script with that and said ah you can't do anything which i think is fair enough um but the, there was um a lot of pushback over that film he then did the fourth man and he was getting to a point where it was just becoming very difficult for him to make films in holland there was so much sort of um pushback and stuff from, from all angles. So then he makes Flesh and Blood with Rutger Hauer in uh, 1985. And that is an English language film, um, but it is filmed in Spain and it's co-funded um, with US money and European money to, to get it made. And that was made for Orion. So that was his first big or attempt to make a film. In, in a parallel universe, Paul Verhoeven could have directed Return of the Jedi. And this is this is kind of unbelievable, this little fact. So Soldier of Orange, 1977, is a war film, and it goes down really well. Steven Spielberg sees the film and is blown away by it. He then thinks of Empire, Empire Strikes Back is, is being shot, and he thinks of suggesting Paul Verhoeven as the director. He thinks of suggesting him to... George Lucas saying, look, this guy did Soldier of Orange. He's definitely the guy to do Return of the Jedi. Story goes, Steven Spielberg then saw Spetters and was so disgusted by it. He was like, I'm not recommending that guy <laughs> to George Lucas. So, so, um, so Robocop becomes his first sort of foray into big American sci-fi and he moved to the States, States to shoot it. Um, obviously, we talked a little bit about... Um, the suit, the suit, how much that cost. It was uh, designed by Robo Team. There, there was a story in, there's a really good short documentary called Flesh and Steel, which used to be on earlier editions um, on DVD and Blu-ray of Robocop. It just gives you a good sort of overview of everything. And there was a bit where they talk about the suit and where Paul Verhoeven gets very animated. I found it always difficult to understand what he was saying about this. But I, I, I heard something recently where they were saying basically he came up with a design which was quite similar to what we got i think in the the final movie they then said no it's got to be like a big superhero thing and it's got to look really bold and stuff so robbo team did all this for them and then they realized that looked ridiculous and that they would be better off going back to the slimline version and i think communication really broke down on set with robbo team and paul verhoeven which Paul Verhoeven now says it's entirely his fault. He takes responsibility. But I think on the, the set, they weren't actually speaking, but they went down to the, back to a sort of sleeker, sleeker version. Ed Neumeyer, the writer, says um, it's like if Braun made um, A Knight in Shining Armour, Braun, the, the 80s company. And when you think about it, everything in the 80s was silver. Like you get TVs and the out, 
side would be silver. In the noughties, then you had iPods and everything was white. And then you get into the 2010s and everything sort of like black and sleek. And to that end, I do think in, in the remake, I know people have got different opinions on it, but it's almost like if Apple had made a knight in shining armor at that point. Um, but the way that they reveal it in the final movie, you, you don't really see it. So you get those scenes where uh, Murphy or Robo is being, um, you know, operated on the same, remove his arm, you know, he's got Kevlar and all that. And then he wakes up and as he walks, you just catch a glimpse of him in one of the, the sort of monitors on the side. And then when he walks through the police station, he's obscured by um, sort of frosted glass. And they said that was a way that they they were always concerned if they just suddenly went, here we are, we're in a, it's, it's futuristic, but it's sort of realistic. If they just dropped in this character and people rejected that design, that suit design, the film wouldn't work. You know, if he looked like Judge Dredd, the film would not work. So they were very careful to slowly kind of reveal that suit. And I think it, it works really well. But in terms of the production, I mean, they shot this in 1986, obviously, but it was in Dallas in apparently one of the hottest summers they had. And it just took a massive toll on Peter Weller. They had to hydrate, rehydrate him constantly because of how much water he was losing through, through the heat and stuff. And the story goes that it took 10 hours to get the suit, 10 or 11 hours to get the suit on the first time. Although I would add they would have been refitting it at that time. Um, so he, he worked with a movement coach as well called Mani Akim. And apparently this was a bit of a problem because they, they devised the movements before they practiced them in the suit because the suit wasn't ready. And they then tried to just launch into filming. And Peter Weller said, well, all the things I've done, I can't, I can't do now because this suit is so heavy. It's so uncomfortable. And it, it's going to look ridiculous. So they actually gave him more time to, to practice. They just slowed all the movements down. So when you look, he's very sort of, um, they're sort of like bird-like movements, but they're very sort of slow and, and things. But it, it really works well to, to give you the impression that it's not just a guy wearing some armour on a set. It really does look good. I think that movement's really part of what sells the character as well. It's um, I mean, it's 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 a, it's a beautiful suit. It's, it, I mean, um, I think credit to the producers who who networked and really got the best people for the budget in play on this um, on this production. I mean, you've got some uh, Phil Tippett did some great uh, puppetry well, or stop motion animation, which is probably the film that kind of like phased out where we can. Coming to the end of that era and before the CG era, um, but it suits probably this story. And when you're dealing with mechanical movements and the Ed 209, and um, but the yeah Rob Bottin obviously uh, the thing. I mean, it, it was it's the some great um, one of those great craftsmen. Um, uh, but the suit looks, looks looks beautiful. It's you're right, yeah. The slow reveal. I was thinking just watch rewatching it. If they did straight on just reveal, just straight onto the camera, you, you'd probably won't buy into it. I think you do have to slowly be introduced to it bit by bit and then just see how elegant it is. Um, but yeah, I think part of selling that is is Peter Willer and his his movements. I think 
taking on board, even though he had to really relearn. Because I think the suit was re- delivered only last minute before um, he could start filming. So he had to rethink, as you say, his movements. But um, it's it's a difficult style. Um, a person in a, well, I'd say the latex suit. Uh, it, it, we've seen so many films where it just comes out ridiculous. But this, this does work. I mean, um, great lighting. I think it's something sort of, I mean, it looks beautiful sometimes for, even though it looks, you know, it's down and dingy. It's, it, it's the budget. It just, it just looks be- beautiful, especially, um, yeah, some of the lighting in the suit. Um, it is, it's interesting, actually, you say that, because when you've got um, the, the sort of artwork of the, the main poster is iconic and it's a painting of the shot where he gets out of the petrol station. But in that shot, um, that, that sort of iconic image, the helmet is red because of the light sort of reflecting up off of it. And particularly in scenes like the one where he, he first goes into the uh, mum and pop store, um, his first arrest, you can really see all the like fluorescent lights they've got around that shop are really sort of reflecting in the suit. And it's like almost like, a, I think this would be the way to push it if they do it anymore is almost have it like it's a chameleon thing because People always say the suit in the first um, and third movie are grey and then it's blue in, in the second one. It's sort of true, but there are scenes where it looks like it's the colour of the set. And I think particularly in that scene um, where you've got those fluorescent lights, yeah, it really, yeah, it just looks amazing. Obviously, you don't see the reflection of the camera crew, but you get all these reflections of the lights and stuff and it looks great. I also can remark... Um because of the big chrome and the big kind of like hulking metal, it kind of like, I always thought it kind of triggered off the spirit of Detroit, which is this, you know, yesteryear, a big motor car industry, or it certainly was back in the day. And then it kind of like that, um, uh, that industry kind of faded away. And so that can, then Detroit, a lot of his economic downturn was reflected in that, but it kind of reflected if it, because it is a Detroit story or it, very front and center so it kind of it does kind of resemble that kind of americana motor car industry uh, of, of of the u.s at that time so and you've got obviously the steel mill which is where murphy's executed and where him and lewis go back to later and you have the final showdown with clarence and it's it, it's just like this massive obviously man-made structure that's decaying isn't it so it feels very sort of the urban decay uh, appropriate yeah it's almost like well, I, I mean, location. It, it is a fantastic location. Though. This is like, these aren't, <laughs> these are sites, you've got sets, you've got map paintings, and but it just, uh, it, it's, it's Dallas. I think it, part of it's shot in Dallas where they've had some great, uh, great buildings there, very futuristic buildings for its time. Um, which is, and I think that's one of the, the sort of unique things in a way. I mean, other films had done it a little bit, but. You know, I think of Alien, and they always said with that, it, like the Nostromo is not um, gleaming. You know, it's a worked-in space, and it looks gritty. And in Robocop, you've really got a mix of that sort of futuristic gleaming stuff, but also the sort of dirtiness and things that have been run down and neglected. Um, you do get this thing as well that sometimes in the OCB boardrooms, it feels like they're using a steady cam and you've got these gliding shots, everything's smooth. It's like, that's where the money is. And then you get down into the police station and it's on a sort of shaky cam 
and it's like there's no money here for us to you know i think little little touches like that um uh, are fantastic you know? it, it, it's it's both epic and it's then it's raw at the same time this is this is the strange thing about this film because you've got and i think it's helped a lot by the uh, basil polaris um uh, score on it which which informs so much of this movie i think it works you know one of those great movies where you sometimes you just don't have any dialogue going and then a lot of internal narrative especially with murphy where he's rediscovering that he was actually a person that he was alex j murphy he's not a you know he's he has passes he's actually a person this reawakening uh and or, or when he's you know riding into town it's almost like the sheriff and it is it's comic book and then it's, it's grand and it's like epic and this quite adds to its uh why it, it seems not only just bigger than life but it seems an epic tale when you and i i think i don't know what you think of the score but i i, I think it adds so I mean, much the score, the score is amazing and um they did do this thing of using different elements of you know there's more um electronic sounds when you've got the sort of sci-fi bits and then there's more uh, traditional musical instruments they're using in some of the more emotional beats that are harking back to Murphy's Murphy's real life but that sort of it gets nicknamed the Robo March if you get the soundtrack it's not called that but that main theme from Robocop I think is brilliant you know when you listen to something like um Alan Silvestri's uh Avengers theme which is really record one of the most recognizable scores probably of of recent modern cinema um it's up there with that it's just really rousing and um he he returned on the third film and it's the it's the best thing i mean there's not a lot of good things about the third film but it's the best thing about that film is having him back and also building on the themes that that he had originally um and it's really missed i think in in the second film but yeah it it, it does so much work um in those scenes it's it's great yeah yeah i i, I think that this is kind of like yeah a, a lot of that um spirit of where this movie is or how to regard it when you're watching it it is um um informs so much of the viewer um you find that in a lot of films where there's not much dialogue but then it relies i say john williams work as well you've seen in star wars or, or so forth or any spielberg film it's it uh, a lot of the internal narratives all just told orally, you know. Um, um, right. Well, I, I, this is the film that's got a lot of great characters. All right, you've got Robocop, but, I, it, but every single one, it, it, it you've got some probably some great character actors in in this in, in this film. Um, it, whatever the role, it's it, like there's no rough note in it. Kind of thing. Is any particular performance I think you or, could, or just that you kind uh, of feel like is worthy of a mention here? Um, yeah, um, and really, when you look at the film, there's only about sort of ten main characters, I'd say, in it, which I think is sort of a good number. You know, some are a little bit more supporting than others. Obviously, we talked about Peter Weller is is um, Alex Murphy and Robocop. Um, they obviously needed someone who was sort of slender enough body wise to put that suit on and for it to not look ridiculous there's always stories that Arnold Schwarzenegger was um considered for this I don't think he was ever 
really approach because they knew there was just no way that they could um, put him in that, in that suit, to be honest, and, and move him about. But also there's that argument, a bit like with 1995's Judge Dredd, of if you have a big A-list actor, are you really going to obscure their face for the whole movie? They're, they're probably not going to like that. Um, so they... they they have Peter Weller. He's he's a really great actor, um, and I have heard Ed Newmyer say that there was some pushback over why are we really paying someone to, you know, an actor like that when we're not seeing them? Can't we just get anybody like a stunt guy or something like with Michael Myers? But he argued that you do need someone who can convey um, the sort of emotions Murphy's going through, and I think you do. It's amazing how much sympathy he gets for his character, considering. He's only Murphy for about 20 minutes of the film before he he's executed or crucified. So you don't really get to spend much, much time with him at all. The fact as well that you never see his family apart from in flashbacks really helps put you in his position. So this theme of the lost paradise, we're kind of like there as well because we've never met his wife. We've never met his son. We're, we're experiencing these things that he... He, as Robo later, he's not really even remembering that line that he says, I can feel them, but I can't remember them. He's got like these fractured elements. And and it's almost like he's now, you know, he's still got a brain. He still can remember this stuff. But there's a section that's not working anymore. And he's kind of, you know, sort of paralyzed by that or something. It's I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing. And whether he got whether he's actually dead or not. I mean, when the length of the execution, I think, is justified because everybody I've watched this movie with over the years, and I've made a lot of people sit through this movie, and not all of them have enjoyed it. But having it that long, you don't, it's not like a, a you know, he's shot with a laser gun and then the next thing he's, he's Robocop because you'd say, well, take that stuff off and you'll be Alex Murphy underneath. You watch him and you know that he's died because no one would survive that. I have a question for Mr. James. Yeah, that's something to a bit more. It, it, there's a scene that, well, confusing is a strong word. It's not like I, it took me out of the movie, but for me, that guy was dead. I know it sounds stupid, but he was 100% dead. But the people at the hospital tried to revive him. There's a scene yes. actually where we try yes. to revive him. And the guy has been shot like 10 times, and including the head. I'm not talking about the people, the scientists who are part of the Robocop project, but they are actually literally hospital staff trying to revive him. And I was thinking, but there's no point. That's so weird that actually that this was left in the movie. But that, because That's great. That is great, Richard, because everybody says that. And I think it's very, very, very deliberate. Right. So okay. it makes you go. It makes you go. Why are they doing that? This guy is definitely yeah. dead. I think if that scene wasn't there. But apparently the, the other weird thing is that they wrote this into the script thinking it was a bit silly. But paramedics said that that is true. They would actually do that because they, 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 just try. To they, of, they will try. Almost, yeah. Almost just to they know the guy's not coming back. And if if so, what sort of life are they going to have? Right. But it's like. We, we just need to sort of tick this box or whatever just to certify this. The other thing to note is the people in that scene are genuine paramedics, I believe. So they, they got people in who were going to advise some actors and then they were like, well, so 
shouldn't we just use these guys? And it feels very documentary that that bit, the way they're speaking, it's not very theatrical. So they are real paramedics. Um, and they said they they would do that. The but the other tiny little fact or or sort of bit that comes into play later is that they, I think they have a conversation when you go to the the scientists and you're seeing from his point of view. They they make a reference to having to make sure that he's legally dead or something. So it's kind of part of that that sort of thing where they can go right. We definitely didn't almost clearing their names of whatever we did. There was no guy to bring bring back, which possibly means that they knew that there would be a problem going forward with it. Do you mean that actually that the fact that that guy was dead for them it makes it right what they did? You, no, you I think I think it's more to I think it's more of a, a legal thing to cover themselves at a later date. Because the film okay. is very cynical for a start. <laughs> I think it's more that. But I think dramatically, it really works because it makes you go, the guy's dead, the guy's dead in your brain. So you're kind of watching it. So when he comes back to life, it, it's like you know that the guy's died because you've seen it. If, if it, there was a lesser version of that, I think you would think that he could strip all that, that material off. And he would be Alex Murphy again. I mean, there is there is a line in the second film which isn't necessarily canon, but says um, you're just a couple of chunks on on a um, on a table. You're not even a corpse or something like that, which is pretty brutal. Um, but it, it's a good point. Like how much of him does remain after after all of that? Um, I think you're yeah, right. It kind of it does kind of press on the point. There is nothing left. There's no soul. It's complete brain dead in, in you know i mean because i guess we're so used to uh people being shot and so forth and then you know you see them in flashback oh they're, they're alive again and i think this really presses the point we even the audience has gone on that journey he's there's nothing of him left he's complete the soul has gone as well it's, it's there's nothing but it, it can rest on that and then um which plays into this mystery well how can there be anything left? And what is left? Is it actually what is manifest as Robocop? Is that really him? And and um I think this is the whole uh, and Paul Ver Paul Verhoeven, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Say so Paul Verhoeven. So apparently he he's not religious, but he says he's fascinated with the historic figure of Jesus Christ. And obviously, in this scene, it is essentially um a crucifixion so the idea that he's shot in the the hand first yeah, yeah. and things like that finally shot in the head and the, the the idea is that you then get the resurrection later in the film so it's kind of an allegory for for that he talks about him as an american jesus doesn't he yeah the american jesus i mean there's so many religiously or nods or kind of like um tapestries going on i mean what even in where they have the showdown in the steel mill it's almost like you know some Dante's circle of hell. It's it's it, it's, um, but the whole story is, is yeah. The American Jesus is the resurrection story. It's it is he gets crucified, not just killed but crucified. Yeah, uh, you know, figuratively speaking, uh, at the beginning, the resurrection of Robocop or as Robocop, whatever that is, and then. I was thinking when watching, re-watching it, 
there is almost then a crucifixion of Robocop or what he is or what he's been awakened as when he gets um, taken down, hunted down by the police or he's framed and then again he's just shot to pieces by his, um, his colleagues or um, the police force absolutely destroyed and then I think that's at that point then he kind of like resurfaces again and resurrects again that's when Murphy comes to the fore when he I think it's that mask of it. and that's when you notice then I mean again great subtleties in performance and how it's directed is it, the voice is less metallic. He starts talking about his, his doesn't feel, you know, he, he can remember the past or he doesn't feel hungry. He, he, he's not going to be dictated to. He, he's not throwing this routine. He's, he's kind of very much, um, even a sly smile, you can almost, almost imperceptibly see a little bit of a smile here and there uh, as the film uh, is coming to his cloud. And I think, we, I think we're all kind of like hoping as we watch is Murphy there? Is it real? And then, and, and we come wishing it uh, to happen. Uh, I think that that's a good point because people are, in the script. He is written as Robo after that, after um, after he's killed. But I was thinking, it's, and apparently that's how Peter Weller wanted to be referred to on set. I was thinking that's kind of strange because watching the film when I was, um, you know, when I first watched it, I, I I wanted him to be Murphy again. That's that's kind of the whole point. And I know some people refer to uh, the characters as Murphy, Robo, and then Robo Murphy. Some people hate that, but <laughs> the idea of... And you then get, after the, the second crucifixion, you get another media break, and we're then into the third section of the film, mm-hmm. where he takes that, you know, takes the helmet off. And it, that's kind of one of those superhero tropes of the hidden identity as well, isn't it? But it's usually hidden from the public in, in old comic books. Um it's a great. I mean, he, he's hidden from himself, you know. And when he takes that off, it that the I can't stress enough, like how amazing that prosthetic sort of thing that you know the whole face when he takes that off, how it looks. Because he says you might not look what you might not like what you're going to see. And you think it might be another. We've been in this Paul Verhoeven movie for an hour. It's going to be hideous, right? And he just looks sort of angelic in that. And and it's amazing how that those effects haven't dated it still really looks like he's wired into a machine but his face is perfectly preserved and i always wondered on robocop 2 why has he got that mask on again because we don't need that it serves no narrative purpose anymore but the truth is the suit and that makeup effect would take ages to put someone into if you were going to try and shoot a whole movie that way i don't think pete weller was massively keen to come back and do a second film but but did because of how uncomfortable that suit was but i think now you could do that you could do that digitally and make that look really good but um yeah he's kind of there's a line that michael minor says where he's trampled on by the good guys and the bad guys and that's the thing he's executed by clarence and his gang and then as robocop he's executed by his colleagues you know um at the behest of it's not that transition this is kind of why i kind of like yeah, it kind of like he, of course, the uh, Murphy dies. He trans transforms into um, Robocop or this entity. This at the beginning they don't even recognize. I mean, he's just OCP product. He's not a person. He's product as one of the um, 
you know, um, as their toad uh, walk. Um, one of the, I think, um, one of the executives kind of um, tells one of the police officers his, his OCP product is not, it's not a person. And that's how they like to think of him. Yeah. Then, of and course, he never refers to himself. Obviously, the final scene um, is when they say, nice shooting, son, what's your name? And he says, Murphy. And that's the first time that he actually refers to himself as that. Because prior to that, he is talking in the third person. He says to Lewis, Murphy had a wife and son, what happened to them? He never says that Murphy was him. So it's only that he sort of self-identifies as Murphy right in, in the end. And apparently this just went down so well with test audiences that they they took out the final scene. Well, that's when um, that, I think, film naturally ends. Because, yes, I, I do know then, I think there were another media break after that, apparently, originally filmed, where you follow... Um, Anne Lewis in the hospital and she kind of like says, yeah, she's going to be okay. And, you know, it's tough in, you know, if it's tough in the kitchen, you get out of it. But that was when it was supposed to end on another media break. But then, like we said, I think audiences, I think there's even cheering. And then even if you watch it, you kind of like, you're waiting for him, nice shooting son. And he says, what's your, what, what's your name? And he ends with, and he, he well, Robocop is the, is what he's known as, but then he says, of course, Murphy. And that's like, he's reclaimed your soul again which is which is basically it, it is what that story is is the art of, of that's like running spiritual soul of that story is, is this action comic whatever you want to call it what it, you're just following can he come back and that's what you, you you're following and he um i mean there's there's, there's you know great great foes you know kind of he almost faces the devil himself which is you know i, I guess a, a great performance by kurtwood uh smith who's as vital as a um um as a villain as you can get you know um but he um even crucified you know even like in that climax he puts a spear through his chest and again it's this jesus analogy that keeps coming up and even at that climax he, he walks on the water you can see there's purposely He's walking towards Kurtwood Smith at the end and their final confrontation, good and evil. But you see him actually walking on the water as a come, an obvious come Jesus reference. And it is. Um, and when that's, that's met, it's such a justification that he's he's come back and he's again, you don't, you don't really call it a revenge story, but it is quite satisfying to say he's. The good has triumphed over evil in those comic book terms. But um it's really and the thing with the, the good, good and bad in in this is it's it's quite unusual for Paul Verhoeven to have these very clear cut goodies and baddies, and I think the more clear cut maybe in this than any other other film. So you do have these uh, like a sort of rose. I mean, Kurtwood Smith. I think there's something of this come out two years before Batman eighty nine, and there's something about the something Joker esque about him, isn't there? He he laughs like a maniac. He takes pleasure in pain. He doesn't do these kind of um, mind games that uh, I think you would think were quite silly, but he's got that real scary element to him. I mean, there's just nothing kind of redeeming about the guy. Chaos and glee in what he does. There's, there's, he just unapologetically just does what he does, um, which, uh, yeah, not, not very, yeah, very, very com comic bookish. Uh, say, but... He'd almost be like a pantomime character if it wasn't for the things that he was doing was so evil, you know. So and the violence wasn't so graphic, you know. Um, so I think he he's he he's fantastic casting in this, 
Um, Nancy Allen obviously plays Anne Lewis, Murphy's partner, and she sort of um, is sort of the one trying to pull him back, really, and make him remember who he is and, and sort of sends him on that journey. I think the journey where he goes home is like really central to the the film. It's that sort of a scene that could almost be cut, but I think it would be a completely different movie if you did. And it, that heart of the film, I think, sort of sets it aside that, yeah, there's all this violence and action, but really it's about that he's looking for that home that obviously he can't find his wife and kid when he he does visit. And the score at that point is is fantastic as well. Um, there are great scenes. These are great scenes, actually. But I, I don't. I, if they remove these scenes, it will make no sense to us. These scenes actually, where you can see through his eyes, uh, his past moments with his family, I thought actually would maybe the best scenes of the movie, to be honest. Um, and and the fact that Chibat was smart enough to do that in the first person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Well. Yeah, it's um, it's that this bleeding of his subconscious, and it's like this is the awakening of that human part or that soul. I mean, I think I think when when the producer said kind of like it, if if the heart is strong enough, then the soul will return. You know, uh, words to this effect. So this is kind of like his fight to come back. So there's not much spent in this kind of like comic book shoot him up, as in taking out. You know the bad guys. It is this. This story then shifts gear very quickly into this um, very soulful story, um, which is um, dwelling on that. Is like you know, would would, would you do that? You know, in in the comic book um, movies of, t- of 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 yesteryear or even today, it's uh, it's probably why why it has such a long longevity to it. Um, it's um, so I mean, this is a film that is like now coming up to thirty-six years old, let's say now, and and um, it's um, very much yeah a, a, a film with a with a legacy, and there have been sequels and uh, toys. Even though it wasn't aimed at that market, it, it obviously very quickly translated into cartoons and. And toys and merchandise and and the name now is kind of like as ridiculous as initially it probably was an initial script. It's it's synonymous now. People say it with pride. It's it's Robocop. It's it's nothing to look shirk at. Um, well, I suppose we could touch about what what its legacy is on 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 today, really. And I think it kind of like really does touch on uh, basically. I, I think the most appealing thing to me are two aspects is probably the are kind of like our marriage with technology now. I mean, we're, we, I mean, we, we are in the age of AI and integrating ourselves with technology and are we going to be lost in it? Um, that and corporate politics, I, I think that that's it's quite intriguing how, you know, that kind of has manifested into everything now. But um, yeah, us being strong to technology, I, I think it's a, it's a legacy. So, Richard, do you have any thoughts on maybe why this think this film has actually gets gets mentioned in circles nowadays? Well, I think actually, but it's um, I think that the main idea is that actually, but it's 
again, he has ideas that are consequences or at least reflects on the current society. Uh, what we didn't mention so far is the concept of uh, transhumanism, but is for me it's actually the something actually that struck me actually when I watched the movie. It's more than any other sci-fi movie. It's in the best uh, depiction of what some people actually today actually think actually is the next step of uh, of science and evolution, which is using technology to try to be careful what I'm saying here, but make actually human beings better, if you know what I mean, uh, and almost immortal. And uh, and in a way, that's what they're trying to do. Well, obviously, the purpose is not uh, not just for immortal, but it's just for for more security in the perfect cup. But uh, I was thinking the idea that uh, a bit what uh, Elon Musk is doing now is trying to do, or he wants to do, which is try to uh, improve the human body to uh, with uh, trying to make like a, a mix between human and robots. And it's actually an idea that has been in sci-fi for a while. And I think that Robocop is maybe the, the best depiction on screen that I've seen. And it's something that I've read in novels, etc. The idea of using robotic elements to improve the human body. Yes, I, I think, yeah, the, I think, yeah, I agree with those points that it's, uh, it's definitely kind of like, as, as in Legacy, it does... It, it's one of, one of those fears of this movie as you're watching it is are we going to be lost in our technology even be get augmented as we are where or improved quotation marks it's um where do we how much influence are we going to have in the real world and how much is going to be you know um preordained as technology it's like what, what our relationship will be how much control we have uh, those kind of things um, James, I'll open the question to you. What is, do you think our legacy is of, of, of Robocop? I mean, 30 years on, it still gets mentioned in there or, and remade recently yeah. and so forth. And, um, it is... And what, I mean, right, rightfully, rightfully so, um, I think. you know, um, It often gets forgotten that it was nominated for two Oscars for sound and film editing. It, it won neither, but it did get a special um, effects editing award especially for the, the sound effects. Um, so it, it did make a huge impact at the time. And then since then, we've had novelizations, toy lines, two cartoon spin-offs, arcade and video games, comic book adaptations, including a crossover with a Terminator. Incidentally, there was going to be a Predator crossover as well, but that, that got cancelled. Um, sequels, two live-action TV spin-offs, a reboot, and appearances in Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One and in Mortal Kombat 11. Um, plus, he Robocop also fought alongside Sting in a tag team for WCW once. So you can't keep a good robot down. No. <laughs> um, I, wasn't re I wasn't reading that list at all, but there's it's one of those things where you go, there's actually quite a lot of merch. And we are in this world now where, you know, that things keep living with IP and, and there's always attempts to um to, to do new things as we're speaking there is a um a video game for the ps5 called rogue city um a robocop game which is due to land in the middle of this year and 
there's also an extensive uh, documentary which was funded through Kickstarter called RoboDoc, um, which a lot of the guys and girls on the Robocop archive have um, contributed towards. And I think that's going to turn up on, on Shudder later this year. Um, obviously, the immediate kind of legacy is this is one of um, Paul Verhoeven's, what he calls his psychotic trilogy, apparently. So this um, Total Recall and Basic Instinct, he says, are about duality. Um, there's that sort of characters with with two dimensions. He's then on, obviously gone on to do Starship Troopers that we spoke about earlier. Um, I think some of its legacy is just in sort of that window of, you know, the mo- when I t- think about like modern comic books, there's almost like pre-Watchmen and after Watchmen, isn't there? Like 1986, you get Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns, which are sort of adult comic books for the first time. But everything before that was sort of explicitly aimed at kids and now it's for adults as well and it's funny that that year as well is when they're they're filming robocop and it's it's definitely got hallmarks of the comic book movie in it you know i think you can see that in in the mcu and everything that's sort of come afterwards really uh before i mean we should know before that superhero movies were the superman trilogy and Howard the Duck, so there wasn't a lot to go on. They didn't really adapt that that era. But I, I sort of don't doubt that Tim Burton's Batman wouldn't have been as dark if Robocop hadn't worked. You know, it really made people see there was something that I know kids were watching it when they shouldn't be, maybe Robocop, but that there was a a thing there. And I mean, even something like Megan that's come out this year, you can really see um the influence of something like robocop that's come before it particularly with the, the toy commercials and things like that and it, the satire in that film because people talk about megan as a horror i don't think it is but i think it's quite a smart satire and putting that into to films i think has sort of become its legacy a bit as well yeah it has the trappings of a comic book shell to it but i wouldn't say it is it, i think i think even you know um well, Herman said uh, that it is. It, it has a shell of, of the of the comic book, but it isn't. I, he likes comic books, but he it isn't. You know, it is. It looks like it, but the script is is, is definitely not. And you can see this is why it's very hard to put it. Like that initial question at the top of the top of the show was, uh, "What genre is it?" And it is so many, made of so many pieces. It all meshes fantastically, almost seems together. But you know, you're picking at it twenty years, thirty years later, maybe even forty years later, you'll see. Um, I, I can't put it into one one drama, but it is greater than the sum of its whole or some of its parts, rather than much like Robert Cobb himself. But um, yeah, I, I, any final thoughts before we shut down this? <laughs> I've got a little fact which I just think never really gets. Maybe, maybe it does. Maybe people do know this, but so it's pretty well known that The Living Daylights um, was the first Bond movie after um, Roger Moore decided he was too old for the role, and they wanted Piers Brosnan originally. Fair, obviously, it ended up with Timothy Dolan, but they wanted Piers Brosnan. Now, the story goes that he was contracted to a show called Remington Steel, which had been cancelled. So he was free to do Bond. But when they announced that he was possibly going to be the next Bond, people started watching Remington Steel again. The viewing figures went up and it got uncancelled. 
And suddenly, Pierce Brosnan was tied to this show. He couldn't be James Bond anymore. And Timothy Dalton took it over for two, two movies before Brosnan finally got his shot. This actually impacted Robocop as well. So Anne Lewis was originally cast as Stephanie Zimbalist. And she was the lead in Remington Steel. But because that show carried on, she couldn't now be um, Lewis and Nancy Allen coming to take it over at, at the last minute. So that's just that's just a little bit of trivia I wanted to throw throw in there. Um, yeah, I mean, shout to uh, to Nancy Allen. I mean, she does um, again any any role in this. It's it's done. Um, she does wonders. Kind of very very. I think she's from a family of policemen, so she she really did want that role, and she she, she adds a lot to to framing. I think the awakening of of, uh, of Alex Murphy. It's weird because. For a film with so much violence in it, I think it's a really positive movie because at the end of the day, after all they do to him, he still, his soul can't be destroyed. And I think that is quite a positive thing to, to put in a film. It's quite a hopeful thing also, I think for all of us really, as we kind of like um, march on towards uh, technology and, 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 and are we going to get swamped by it and so forth. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would say it is a very, very uplifting. Well, considering how dark it goes in places but it's definitely worth a watch and I'll definitely buy that for a dollar I think you agree right well uh, I guess all it usually says thank you to uh, James and Richard for joining me on this special and we'll see you next time thank you for your cooperation <laughs> good night we hope you enjoyed this film and tvreview.com episode Catch the latest film and TV reviews, together with regular episode content from the world of film and TV every week. See you soon. Would you like to reach our film and TV review podcast audience? Do you have a product or service of interest to film and TV home consumers or followers of the entertainment industry? Have a film or show production to publicize? For affordable price plans for all budgets, get in touch and find out about our introductory advertising options. Reach our audience of film and TV viewers and visit our site contact page at filmandtvreview.com, or you can email us at business at filmandtvreview.com. Reach out today.